Make note of that. In your worship folder, it does mention a welcome of a new member, and as Dr. Brian Henry has come and the church has uh, admitted him to the fellowship, he's not here today, so we, we do welcome him in general, but he actually, flew, after joining here, he flew off to New Zealand, which I actually don't blame him, but he has family members there, and we'll have a f- more formal uh, recognition when uh, he returns, and so we're looking forward uh, to, to that. Uh, in the back, by the way, we do have these kids' sermon notes, so if you have children that are going to participate in the worship, uh, in the sermon time here, uh, I think that's really helpful. Uh, it's in the back. Another church had donated that to us to be able to use, so I encourage you to, um, uh, to have that, or otherwise we do also have a children's program Uh, And the time is recognized on our bulletin when to exit there. Today we're having Holy Communion, and I'll give you further instructions when we get to that time. But it is an open communion. So when we do serve it, uh, we're going to invite you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a member of this church, but you need to be a member of the body of Christ, and you have been obedient to him in believer's baptism, we do invite you to come and join in communion with Christ. <coughs> we will dismiss when it's time, pick up the elements, then return to our seats and wait for one another, as I'll indicate, and receive communion together. We'll do that in just a bit. As we open our service this morning, we have a reading from Matthew 6, if I've written down the right text. Occasionally, I'll get that wrong. One of the things we want you to do when we come and gather together to worship is to focus on Christ. And one of the ways to focus on him is to hear about him through the reading of his word. As one of our elders, Jerry, comes to read Matthew 6, I recommend that you join either in listening or reading along. Prepare your heart to think about Christ. I'll then lead us in corporate worship through prayer, and then we'll receive communion. So Jerry will come now to bring us the reading from Matthew 6. And if you remember, this is a continuation of last week's um, <clears throat> Sermon on the Mount that Andy read to us starting in chapter 5. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners, and they may be seen by others. Truly I say unto you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you... What you need before you ask him, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you have forgiven others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or when you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It is not life, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds in the air. They have neither they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or where shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Amen. Thank you for that reading, the gospel, and the word from Jesus Christ. We've gathered now together to prepare our hearts to worship Christ and commune with him. I'm going to give you a moment privately to think on the very words of Christ and the meaning of this communion time. Prepare your heart. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You can do so even now. Take a moment privately to prepare your heart to eat and commune with Christ in a worthy worthy manner. Take a moment now, and I'll pray for us corporately. Let us pray. Well, Father, we have gathered together as your people to praise your holy name. 
We thank you first and foremost for sending Jesus Christ our Lord to condescend, to come down from heaven, to take on the form of a servant, to live among us, to suffer every type of infirmity that we might suffer. And we have a faithful high priest who is certainly touched by the feelings of our infirmities. But beyond that, to take on him the sin of the world, to take on my sin, to truly atone for it on the cross and to die, and to declare that it is finished, and by his atonement to truly make propitiation for my sin so that the wrath of God is no longer remains on me. What a great blessing it is. And I pray that everyone here would recognize the, the value and the beauty of your gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we praise you now as we come to commune together and we thank you that forgiveness is through Christ, true forgiveness, and that we can truly forgive one another because of what has been given to us in Christ, and beyond that, to, to live differently in this world, there is sufficient trouble each day, but Christ has overcome all of it. And so I pray that your people would not be anxious, whether they're going through some disease or some difficulty or something that is on the horizon that they might find themselves in a state in which they find great grief. I pray that anxiety and grief would be lifted by the glory of Christ. I pray, Father, that our first thoughts would be on your kingdom and your righteousness and trust you providentially to, to work all this out for your glory, which is our good. I pray for your people. May we rejoice in Christ today and delight in the gift of Christ that you have given to us. Grace, mercy, and peace personified in the faithfulness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to ask you now to sing Seated, where you're at. Blake's going to come and lead us in the first three verses of 404. It's the communion hymn. It's a good hymn to stop and prepare yourself to think about communion. After the third verse, we'll prepare the table, and then I'll invite you up one by one to come and receive both elements and then return. We'll receive those elements and then close singing the fourth verse of, of this hymn. So Blake will come now to lead us in the communion hymn 404.
Jerry, if you will, now to bless the bread and the fruit of the vine. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful for the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. Father, your body broken and your <coughs> blood spilled out, Lord, that takes away the sins of all of us. Father, we give you praise and thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I had and receive both elements. We'll start with this aisle here. If you'll stand, receive both elements, go circle around and return to your seat. Let's come now. two elements here, the bread and the cup. The bread, of course, represents the very life of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that we read through the Gospels is to hear about his message, his ministry, and his life. But ultimately, Jesus Christ came to fulfill all righteousness, all of the law that had been set up to demonstrate what perfect righteousness is. There was only one man to actually fulfill every bit of it. 
And if you're guilty with one aspect of the law, you're guilty of it all. And so none of us could stand before God in our own righteousness. All our righteousness then is like filthy rags. It, it would be discarded because they would be stained. It would be that which is unholy. Christ, the very Holy One, came to live a life of perfection. And it is by His merit and His merit alone that you will stand righteous before God. If you have confessed your sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and are trusting Him for His righteousness, receive this in remembrance of Him. Declared righteous then by, by God doesn't mean you won't have accusers. Satan himself is described as the accuser of the brethren. And he has much to, to accuse us of. Sin, sin that we have done in the past, sin that perhaps we've done in the present, and sin that perhaps we'll do in the future. Would that then disqualify this one who is trusting on the very righteousness of Christ to stand before God? How about those sins that you have actually done? What will be done with those? There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Jesus Christ because he has atoned for everyone. In fact, on the cross, when he shed his blood, he said that very thing, it is finished. Every sin that you ever committed, every sin that you ever will commit, for those that are trusting in Jesus Christ, all of those have taken on him, on his body, on the tree, and atoned for every one. If you have had your sin atoned for by Jesus Christ, and no longer bear the weight of your guilt and shame because he bore it. Receive this in remembrance of him. At this point, I'd like to stand and have us go back to this communion hymn, 404, and think how we then respond to this Lamb of God who cleanses every stain of sin. And I hope this has reminded you today and every day to truly be thankful. Whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, whatever difficulty it might be, if you're in Christ, you have great thankfulness, don't you? Every day, even this day. Let's stand with grateful hearts and respond in thanksgiving.
turn to number 620. This is a new hymn for this congregation, but it's a beautiful song of testimony of how wonderful the Lord is to us. He is the song of life. He is the song of joy. He is the song of love, and he gives his song to us. So as we um, learn a new song here, let's have Amber play through it once for us, and then we'll, we'll come in and sing all three verses. 620. Number 420. 420, come ye sinners, poor and needy. Come everyone who is thirsty. Isaiah 55 1. 420.
good singing every single day. Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be from Psalms 141 and Psalms 142. It will be found on page 522 in your pew Bible. Again, that's Psalm 141 and Psalm 142, page 522. Let's read the word of God. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds, in company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As one as when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O my O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me, and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets, while I pass by safely. Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for the mercy of the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they too strong for me. They for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as is with all days, thank you for this wonderful day that you've given to us to glorify you and to gather together as a church as your holy body, Lord, to praise you, our righteous Savior. Yes. Thank you for the many mercies each day you give us. As we know, uh, some of our brothers in foreign lands are not so, uh, not so blessed as us to gather so freely to praise your holy name, Lord. We pray that you will always help us to let the righteous rebuke us and let us not refuse it, Lord. Let us grow closer to you and let us grow further away from our sin, Lord. We pray for today's service, Lord, that it would be glorifying to you, that you would help us in all we do to glorify you, and for our offering 
to go for your, your will, Lord, and that it may be made used to further your, your mission on this earth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand once more and take our hymn books and turn to number 504. 504, be strong in the Lord, be strong and courageous, for it is the Lord our God who goes with you. Deuteronomy 31, 6. 504.
you, Blake, Amber, and Church, for leading us in songs of praise to our Lord. Let's look in his word. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's word to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Two weeks ago, I left off at verse 7 in chapter 3, where the preacher of Hebrews, if you will, emphasized the need to note verse 7, today, hear his voice. It is a call to faith. It is a call to believe. In fact, he says then in verse 8, don't harden your hearts. This admonition serves as both a call to faith as well as a warning of unbelief. And then he'll go on and, uh, and cite an Old Testament example where the people didn't fare too well in their unbelief, in not hearing and heeding God's word. And they perished in the wilderness and they didn't enter into his rest. This book of Hebrews, this letter to the Hebrews, is really a sermon to God's people, to the church at that time. The apostolic preacher here calls for a decision of faith. This decision of faith is to hear God's word and to hear it right now. Hearing is, is listening not just with an understanding, understanding what is being said, but acting on what is being heard. Listening includes responding in obedience. We call that faith. And the opposite of that, of course, to hearing would be hardening. That is, if you hear God's word proclaimed, it doesn't return to him void. It accomplishes what he will. And it may very well harden a rebellious heart who hears and turns away, and then it becomes more difficult to hear, not easier. The next time will be harder. I've already heard that before. It doesn't mean as much, and you then become dull in your hearing. And so I hope you get the tone and tenor of this preacher as this word is penned here in the book of Hebrews. He's calling to faith, because failing to do so, he's already used the analogy as like drifting away out into the perilous deep where there is no hopes, no safety, no refuge, no rest. That drifting away will lead you away from the only source of life, the one and only true living God. So the exhortation given here is a positive one in calling for hearing. It's also negative in calling you not to harden your heart. This is of such importance, such relevance, as he quotes an Old Testament passage that now is thousands of years old, 
It was hundreds of years old when he first quoted this passage in verse 7 that says today, and it is relevant then and it is relevant now. Today simply means right now, this minute, this present time. Don't harden your heart today because tomorrow never comes. You say, well, tomorrow is whatever date on the calendar. It's the 7th. Fine. Wake up on the 7th and you'll find it is today. That's the imagery being given. An urgency to act, to hear, always here now in the present, and not to harden your heart, which is a failure to hear. This admonition here to hear today, to hear now, is going to then be followed up with an exhortation, and that's what we're going to focus on in verse 13. An exhortation to one another. And it is an exhortation that is given then to the, the church, just like the admonition was as well, the warning of apostasy, because you never know in a congregation who is there, those that might truly be in Christ and those that may not. But to everyone who is there then, here is another admonition that's given in verse 13 that we'll focus on, and that is to exhort one another. Let's read it in its context, and I'm going to just pick up at verse 6. I have a point for which I'll make later why we're picking up here, but I do want you to notice it, it focuses on, of course, the glory of Christ, who is a faithful son. It is based on his faithfulness that we then are sons of God, and thus in his house, in his family, his community. And then he'll go on to say the second part of verse 6. Notice, and I'll pick up reading there. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. And therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let us pray. Father, I do pray that today we will hear and heed your word. Send your spirit to illuminate our hearts, to enlighten our minds, so that we may very well hear the word of Christ for each today and respond in faith. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
I began at verse 6, halfway through it, to emphasize something that I do want you to look back and note. This admonition, and we'll focus on the exhortation here, is bookended by verse 6 and verse 14. Notice the similarity in those expressions. For his house, if we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope, that is, we're in the family of God. If we continue, that proves that we're in there. That's not how you get in there, but that's how you demonstrate it to yourself, which is most important, and certainly to others as well. And then it closes out a similar way in slightly different phraseology, for we have come to share in Christ. That's, that's our union with Christ. That is the fact that we are members of his household, if you will, and what demonstrates that? If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. A Christian perseveres in faith. We don't promote any kind of easy believism, if you will, that just focuses on making a decision for Christ as if you get your card punched for heaven. That's your get out of hell free ticket and then you you have the ride to glory and you're going to make it scripture doesn't demonstrate it that way at all you must make a decision and the time for that decision is now it is right now there is a call to faith and call to belief but it is genuine faith and genuine faith continues on Genuine faith continues on today, now, continually. You don't wake up and next thing you know you're an apostate with genuine faith. It's not some sort of decision that creates points for eternity. It is a supernatural change of heart. And how do you know that there's a supernatural change of heart? Because there is a constant desire for repentance and faith. It's continual. And should you fall to the side, if you will, you won't stay there because you want to get back into communion with Christ. One of the reasons we physically commemorate communion is to be reminded of our union with him and our desire to be in Christ. His voice is expressed in his word. So to say to hear his voice, we're, we're not look, asking for you to hear some sort of mystical experience or something like that, but to read and hear the words of Christ for which faith responds, and and what's the difference between someone who reads this word and it it really doesn't mean anything to them and someone who reads it and it does mean something. It's the, the difference here is that they are indeed Christ's and they hear his voice. And the response to hearing his voice then is to obey him, to call him Lord, not just in words but in life, in living the fact that you you have this inward disposition to want to submit to him. To want to pick up your cross and follow him. To, to, to sacrifice your own self-interests. 
and live for Christ. To live is Christ. And to die, that will be with Christ and therefore gain. This taking heed, this warning, is to examine your own belief to see if you are indeed in the faith. Now, in verse 13, this preacher of Hebrews adds an important concept. It proves to be, and I'd argue, one of the means by which you will continue in the faith firm unto the end. You want to continue into the faith firm to the end? I do. I can imagine not. You want your children to continue in the faith firm to the end? Your loved ones, your friends, your neighbor, everyone that you know? Yes, we want that to occur. We've been charged to continue. If you, if you don't continue, you're not in his house. If you don't continue, you're not in Christ. So this is essential. So the preacher of Hebrews, noted in verse 13, engages with the church of this incredible ministry that is given to each of us, that we would continue in Christ. How? Verse 13, by exhorting one another every day. That, that, that is one of the means by which you'll continue in the faith. It is essential part for those that are within the body of Christ to exhort one another, to encourage one another. And when do you do that? Today. That is, now. And why would, would this be a part of it? So that you wouldn't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you're hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, you won't continue on. See how that fits together. This, this word here, exhort. Parakaleo is what it's in Greek, but it, it, it simply means, it's a compound word, but it simply means to, to urge, to implore, encourage, comfort, help, all of those concepts there. The, the word para that's put at the front here is the idea of coming alongside of somebody to do this. It, it implies a personal engagement of encouragement and comfort and help with one another. Exhort one another. This is a message to the church. This is a message to the body of Christ. To those that are in the household of God. Individually in Christ, collectively in His house. We'll get to this in greater detail in seven or eight years when I get there in Hebrews 10, but you might want to turn. We'll get there quicker than that, maybe. Hebrews 10. Because the Lord might return by then. Hebrews 10, a familiar passage most of us know in the charge to not neglect to meet together. Hebrews 10, 24. Notice how it begins. And let us consider. This consideration is an intentional act. Let us consider, that is, put this on the front burner of your mind. Let us consider what? How to stir up one another to love and good works. Th that's the point of the exhortation. That's another description of it. Encourage, help, 
implore to what? To, to love. What is love? It is a sacrificial grace and mercy, forgiveness, faithfulness, all rolled up in one. And good works, these are, these are acts produced by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, well, then not neglecting to meet together. Why? Because how are you going to exhort one another if you're not together? If you're not engaged with one another? It isn't a call to, to legalism. It is a call to life. You want to live? You want to grow? Do you, do you want to, to continue in the faith? And then don't neglect to be together. Be a part of the body of Christ. And when you're a part, you do what? You, 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 you consider, you, you take a positive, proactive stance on how to stir up one another. But don't neglect it, as a habit of some is. You just set it aside and don't make that a regular part of their life. But instead, on the opposite, encourage one another. It's just another way to say exhort one another. Do this, and why? All the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the end of the age, the eschaton. So that you're going to make it to the end. So that you'll be there. Stirring up love and good works. Providing encouragement. And I don't want to be crass in my illustration, so forgive me for being crass or cliche to some degree. But I think it helps as a way of analogy. Christianity is not a spectator sport. And I have no problem with spectator sports. <laughs> I like to watch football and see guys beat one another up. And while I'm watching, I think that I'm participating to some degree, which my wife challenges me and says, you okay? <laughs> when the guy's weaving this way, I'm weaving with him. When, when, he, when he drops the ball, I'm, um, and, and, and when he catches it, it's great glory. But really, I'm just watching what's going on. I'm not really engaged. I'm identifying with it. I'm close to it. Sometimes I might even go to one. But I'm not actually in the game and participating. In a church, all of those that are in Christ are in the game. They're in the household. One of the purposes of being a member of a body of Christ that is in a local church, if you will, is so that you can fulfill this aspect of exhorting one another to the obedience of the faith. We, we talk about every member a minister. So, well, what's my ministry? Here's a primary one. Exhortation. One to another. Come and participate in various religious practices that we engage in, in and, and we put out here for your edification. Engage in singing and hearing even beautiful new songs that, that I nearly cry and just thinking about the, the great truth of Christ who gives us the true song. Uh, uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to be reminded about Christ's life and death and his righteousness and atonement. 
all that's important. Prayers, reading the scripture, hearing it, listening to it, being taught. But if that's all you think about church, you, you really missed it. You're essential for one another. To engage in exhortation of one another, that's the ministry of all believers. That's the ministry of those that are in the household of God, that are in his family. This is given to each individual that's in Christ. This is an exhortation that is not an, an option. It's a duty. It's a command. And it's how you're going to continue in the faith and how I'm going to continue. It's how we're going to continue. It's how those little ones will continue in the faith. This is the way God has designed it. To exhort, notice verse 13, who it is to exhort one another. This is directed specifically at those within the body of Christ. That's the one another in mind. This this ministry, this, this primary ministry, this isn't all we do. I understand that, but here in this text, that's what he's driving at so that you will continue in your faith, then exhort one another. This is God's creative design in general for humanity. It's not good for man to be alone. Remember that from Genesis at the very beginning of the creation? God saw everything that he made, and it was good. But one thing, one aspect, would not remain good, and that is if man were alone. So he says in verse chapter 2 and verse 18 of Genesis, as it mentions here, God then makes a helper for him. Mankind was designed for this, to be united with one another in some form or some capacity. This is the, the basic unit, a man and a woman. It's not helpful to be alone. In fact, one of the worst punishments you can have, we call it solitary confinement. It's psychologically devastating. And unless you are mentally ill, you don't like to be alone all the time. I know you like to be alone from time to time. I understand that. But all the time, it would drive you nuts because it's not good. It isn't healthy. It isn't helpful. And again, this is, in a a bigger picture, why we would gather together and why you just don't get a Bible and go out in the woods by yourself. Because it's not good to be alone. You, You need to be with Christ and His people. You need to exhort one another. You need to engage in that practice and then have someone else engage with you. That's the way God has designed it. He's designed that for humanity. He's designed that at the very basic level of what is called marriage, where God brings them together, Genesis 2, 24, 
A man then, then leaves his father and mother and holds fast to a, to a wife, and then they become one flesh. That's his design, which always amazes me. Two people from two different families come together and become one, become united to bring about human flourishing. He told them, this is even before the fall, creating them male and female. And by the way, that's it. There's nothing in between. No other, just two. Because he has an actual purpose so that they wouldn't be alone, that they would be able to commune with one another and build progeny, build those that would come after. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The earth is under the stewardship of mankind. Great responsibility, but something that works as human flourishing continues. And, and no wonder the insane ideology of our day would just absolutely abandon this. It, it's going to result in catastrophe and chaos and confusion. We don't need less people. We need more. And the more you have, the, the more flourishing society becomes. I remember when I was a kid, I was taken up in an airplane by my father, one of those little ones. He was a pilot. And we lived in Washington, D.C. Now, I'm sure it's filled in a little bit up there. But you know what amazed me most? Was seeing all the trees from the top. Because when you're on the ground, it's a different perspective. This earth's a lot bigger than we'd imagine. And God is sovereign and God is in control. This mandate here to young people to get married and have kids and raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord didn't stop in the garden. It continued. In fact, it was reaffirmed after the flood. You can find that in Genesis 9. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Bring about flourishing. This family structure provides a benefit for society and social community. It brings about flourishing of humanity in a general sense. And without this structure, the society would absolutely collapse on one another. We need one another. But it's not just something that is inherently designed in the success of a essential society, but I would say it's also foundational for the church. Scripture is clear that those that are in Christ are said to then be adopted then into his family. The family of God, one with another. And if you read through scriptures, there's this constant reference of brothers and sisters of mothers and fathers, not who are connected just in biological relationships, but in a spiritual relationship that will last through eternity. Our unique responsibility and relationship one to another as children of God, sons of daughters as promised, and how we should relate one to another as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. It is through our union with Christ 
that one who then we are called into fellowship with him in the household of God, Hebrews 3, 6. As members of this household, then, we have responsibilities. Just as you feel the weight of a responsibility of a household that you have with family members. There's a unique relationship biologically and socially, isn't there? Well, here the structure is calling that within Christ to recognize our spiritual responsibility to one another. And time prohibits me from going into this exhaustively, and perhaps you've already heard this, but let me refresh your memory to a slight degree. If you read through Scripture, it would be helpful at times when you hear this phrase, one another, to stop and think what is the context in which that is being given. This one another is given in the context of life within the church, the very family of God and the responsibility that we have one to another. Remember, Jesus at the uh, upper room with the disciples, they're all gathered together thinking about serving themselves, and yet Christ serves them. He washes their feet, a menial task. It wasn't a religious exercise. It was a real task that needed to be done in that society. And he says, as if I wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. John 13, 14. That is, to sacrifice and care for one another. You would care and sacrifice to some degree, most of you would, if you're good parents, for your children. Or your parents as they age, understandably. But here, the drive is to recognize you have a far greater union with one another within Christ. A union which will last eternally. He tells him in, in 34, the same chapter, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Well, that wasn't new in the sense of just one another, because that's part of the old covenant, is you love one another. But the difference is, and why it's new, he says, just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. So what is your love measured by? The very love of Christ. Stop and think for a minute. How has Christ loved you? That's our example and model in how we are to love one another within the body of Christ. Show brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10 And I guess I better not say because I don't want to embarrass some of the people here. But I sure appreciate the honor that I get often by many of you. It's very appreciative. Because you outdo me, that's for sure. But the call is to do that for all within the body of Christ. To honor one another. To live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. 
to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Romans 15, 7. Instruct one another, Romans 15, 14. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't be kissing on people. It's in their culture, that would be a handshake. You get the idea. A really meaningful, socially acceptable embrace. Romans 16, 16. Don't use your freedom as a Opportunity to the flesh, but serve one another, Galatians 5.13. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you, Ephesians 4.32. Address one another when you're singing in hymns and songs and spiritual songs and making melody in your heart for the Lord. It, it is such a great joy to, when you guys gather together and I can hear the songs of praise to our Savior from his body, one another. Well, I'll let the preacher of Hebrews conclude 13.1. There's much more to say, but I'll let him put a summary on this. 13.1 in Hebrews, look it up when you get a chance. Let brotherly love continue. Th this is the descriptive and the uh, earmark of the church. What, what, what should that look like? Oh, well, well, they're all united in Christ and therefore they are a spiritual family and they actually encourage one another and they demonstrate it in their love for one another. Can I tell you this? That that is a means by which God has designed that you will persevere in faith. See what I mean by it's not a spectator sport? You don't come and see the show. We don't put on a show anyway. Your engagement in churches is, is, is participating in the various aspects of what we do, but, but ultimately, too, to be with one another and let brotherly love continue. When should you do it? Back to our text in verse 13. And this is obvious, but it's the same Impetus he's been giving every day as long as it's called today. <laughs> I love that phraseology. Isn't it a great way to think about it? Every day as long as it's called today. So when should you exhort one another? Today. Well, what's, what, what, what is this day called? Today. It's the same notion here where he said about hearing the voice. He says, today, if you'll hear his voice, it's now. It's a call to urgency. It's a command. It isn't something for you to consider as something optional, something that, oh, well, I might do that when I feel better. Some point down the road, I, I hope to be this way. No, this urgency calls for this right now because this is a critical aspect of ministry within the body of Christ today. As long as it's called today. And in that sense, you redeem the time 
that's called today. Whatever portion there is. Because the days are evil, Ephesians 5.16. Because there are evil days. And in a sense, every day is evil or has elements to it. And so this command to exhort one another (coughs) is daily. It is now because there's always a need. We engage in this ministry as a body of Christ of encouraging one another, engaging in exhortation because there's always a need. Because the circumstances of this life are always going to change today. It's in constant change. Every day brings about new challenges that we must encounter. Discouragement when something that you'd hoped for, planned for, absolutely falls apart and you had no expectation of it. You could use some encouragement from one another. And it is a means of grace that Christ has provided to his body to do that and to to be there, to be that comfort in the time of need. This is a call actively to think about brothers and sisters in Christ and even above your own challenges. You say, well, I have these challenges and I'm going to have people meet my challenges and my needs. No. The call from Philippians 2 is the call that Christ had, certainly had challenges and needs as he bore the difficulty of daily life. But in Philippians 2, it calls us not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than yourselves. It's one of the hardest verses (laughs) that I know. Because that's, I, I have the biggest problem with that. I think I'm more significant than most people. <laughs> I wouldn't admit to it except for here. It's time for confession. <laughs> but you know what I mean, don't you? You do spend a lot of time thinking about yourself and taking care of yourself and worried about yourself getting offended or injured or hurt or whatever it might be. What, what, what an incredible mind then to graciously think about this other person as more significant than yourself. And you have to do that through the humility of Christ granted to you in his example. This exhorting daily is necessary because there is a constant battle with sin in our own life, each of us, even those that are redeemed. Paul will describe it at length in chapter 7 in Romans. And it's almost like this internal war, he's carrying on a conversation within himself. I don't understand my own actions, he says, 7.15 of Romans. I I do not do what, what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I don't do what I want, I agree with the law, it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Doctrinally, we call that the remaining sin, even for the Christian. You have the flesh 
it's described. Remaining sin, that part of unredeemed humanity that remains on this side of glory. When you're in the glorified state, it'll be completely gone. But here, even in a sanctified state, regenerate body, you're still fighting with the flesh. The difference is you're one, you're aware of it. Two, you don't want it. And three, you have the ability through the power of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the flesh. There is victory. There is no temptation that isn't common to everybody. He will give you the way of escape. So take it. So it's not an excuse for doing evil, but it's a recognition that this is a battle that you have to deal with. And we can help one another through this battle to bring about restoration. This is the whole point we were teaching on Wednesday night about church discipline. It isn't to to throw people out and to to be um, hateful to one another. It's to be helpful to one another. To restore them back to faith and flourishing and life. And if they won't, and if they harden their heart, you send them out to be no longer under the protection of a church which cares for one another and exhorts one another, but exposed to the evil of the world and Satan himself. And for those that are truly regenerate, that they might come back to this refuge of Christ. And that is the third thing, too, in why we exhort every day. At least there's, there's many more, but for time, third thing will be just our battle with Satan himself and the demonic forces. Paul would say to the church at Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and the, in the strength of his might. Love the song. Be strong in the Lord. When, when I sing that, that's, wh- that's why I weep inside. I, I think about the strength that he has given us. I think about the weakness that I have and how where we're called to be strong. To put, be strong in the Lord. Put on the armor of God that you might be able to withstand the schemes of the devil because, beloved, he's scheming against you. In most of what you see, much, not all, but much in media and, and information sources and things thrown out there, they're schemes of the devil. Not to bring about life, but to bring about death. And we really don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that which we can see, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who's behind it all. Arm yourself. Arm yourself with truth. Arm yourself with righteousness of Christ. Arm yourself with the peace that is granted to you in Christ. Arm yourself with faith. Arm yourself with the very word of God. And, beloved, pray at all times in the spirit, Ephesians 6, 18. Not just for yourself, but make supplication for all the saints. With all perseverance. So, so your prayers aren't just for yourself to overcome the evil one. It is for your brothers and sisters in Christ as well, so that they would persevere. And the means by which they're persevering, one of the means to do that is through your prayers. They aren't insignificant. 
the part of the means by which you'll persevere to the end. Exhort one another. Do so daily. To faith. Back in our text, it tells us why this is so critical, specifically. I said generally, yes, uh, so that you will persevere to the end. But notice verse 13, the last part of that verse, that none of you, this is what you're doing, exhorting within the body of Christ daily to what end? That you might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's where I'm getting this whole idea of it is a means of perseverance, verses 6 and verses 14, that has to occur. It's going to occur because uh, we, this mutual exhortation brought about one to another on a regular basis, daily. It's a call to the church to take heed lest you fall. It's a warning that we would not be hardened, dull of hearing, but that we might be more attuned, grow, become stronger, be sanctified through the mutual exhortation of one to another. This hardening that he speaks of, and I don't have time to get into it at length, We've already addressed it to some degree. The hardening is another way of thinking apostasy. He's going to address that in his other warning chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 10. In both of those, a great warning to say, listen, if you don't hear, you're not going to continue. And if you don't continue, it's going to be impossible to return you to repentance and faith because you have a hard heart. Chapter 6. And then chapter 10, it says, look, if you deliberately refuse the very word of God, there remains no longer a sacrifice for sin for you. You have no hope. That's what his point is. We'll unfold that in time. But understand this, sin is deceitful. It's dangerous because it is so. I invite you to look at the book of Proverbs and we'll finish on Solomon's wisdom here. If you hadn't read through the book of Proverbs, I highly recommend it. When I first came to Christ, I was told to read a chapter every day. Kind of fits well in a month. Read through it and you'll see what I mean. First ten chapters kind of read straight through. Uh, The last bit is a little bit more difficult because there's so many pithy statements. I understand that. So maybe even take a year to read through the second part. I don't know. But in any case, it's highly worthy and to look at, particularly in our own instruction as well as instruction to those that are new in the faith and to children as well. But all of us might be helped to get a reminder of it, of the deceitfulness of sin which is often ignored. Proverbs 1, 7, it reminds us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. On the opposite of of a wise man would be a fool, 
who despises wisdom and instruction. The, the wisdom and instruction is God's word, and you're a fool to despise it. The fool in, in not just being ignorant and dumb, but fool in rebellious against God. So then the plea is here, my, my son, verse 8, hear your father's instructions, forsake not your mother's teaching, for their graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. See, see, see the beauty of it? We're, we're recalling children then to recognize that submission to God, the fear of Him, and specifically the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like this beautiful decoration. You want to look beautiful? Listen to Christ. On the opposite here, verse 10, if sinners entice you, do not consent. They say, come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol that let us swallow them a lot. And whole like those who go down to the pit. And we shall find all precious goods and we shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw your lot among us. We will have one purse. This is the illustration of sin. That, that's what it's like. God, God has promised this, this beauty of the fear of God and the knowledge of Him. They're like a garland and a beautiful pendant. That, that's what God has promised. But the liar says, come. Oh, come with us. Throw your purse in with us. My son, don't walk in their way. Verse 15. Hold back your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. What they're doing is self-destructive. They are deceitful. They set an ambush then for their own lives. Great wisdom here particularly about the deceitfulness of sin. If you haven't spent much time thinking through it, continue to read on on your own. Sin is deceitful. It promises much and delivers destruction. Thomas Brooks put it this way, Sin is of very deceitful and bewitching nature. It will kiss the soul and look to enticing the soul and yet betray the soul forever. It will with Delilah smile upon us and that it may betray us into the hands of the devil as she did Samson into the hands of the Philistine. Tell the bewitched soul that sin is a viper, that it will certainly kill, that sin often kills secretly, insensibly, eternally. Yet your bewitched soul cannot and will not cease from sin. A man bewitched with sin rather, had rather lose God, Christ, heaven, and his own soul than part with his sin. Oh, therefore, forever take the heed of playing with or nibbling at Satan's golden baits. What a good illustration. Like bait with a hook inside. And that's the truth. Looks enticing. The first bite may taste good, but it will bring about 
death. And ultimately, it is a lie because sin is from the devil, the father of lies. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus said. He doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And so when he speaks, he speaks out of his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. Remember, at the very beginning of the garden, the question was, did God say? Twisting. An intent to deceive is a lie. Says a master theologian who taught her children, my wife, lies intent to deceive because sin is deceitful. So we're called then to exhort one another, to encourage one another from God's word. As Jesus demonstrated, be gone, Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only you shall serve. Exhort one another to resist the devil with God's word, his wisdom, and he will flee from you. Exhort one another, beloved, to faith and faithfulness. When will you do that? Today, while it's called today. Because we will share in Christ with one another if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let us pray. Father, indeed, I'm thankful for your calling us to your glory by your grace and granting to us mercy in Christ Jesus. I pray our recognition of that truth will encourage us each to fulfill the role that you've called us to do, to exhort one another daily to faith and faithfulness. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, take a moment now to think on these things. Respond to Christ directly the way he has spoken to you. If you need to see one of the elders afterwards, we're glad to speak with you individually. But you can take a moment now between you and Christ privately. Take a moment now. Father, I pray indeed you will protect us from the evil one. And may we encourage one another daily as we look for your soon return. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Good. Do you know, uh, brethren, we have met to worship? Can we sing that? I'd like to sing that one instead. 386 in our hymnals. 386, brethren, we have met to worship. We all stand. <laughs>
I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation cannot commend your works to another, and you shall declare your mighty acts. Father, we just give you all glory, praise, and honor this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 